You're listening to Leverage. To Leverage. To Leverage. An ASA Studios production. Welcome to Leverage, the podcast on the politics of aging. I'm Peter Caldas, CEO of the American Society on Aging. Today, on our first episode of the new year, ASA's Public Policy Committee takes over the mic. Co-chairs Amy Herr and Paul Downey will be talking to ASA board members about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and the road that lies ahead for aging in the U.S. The response both to to President-elect Biden and to some of his appointees really reflects a an, an ageist tendency to to devalue um, some of the tremendous assets that come with age and come with experience. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm Paul Downey, co-chair of ASA's Public Policy Committee, an ASA board member and president CEO of Serving Seniors. Joining me as co-host of this Leverage podcast is Amy Herr, Director of Health Policy for West Health. Amy also co-chairs the Public Policy Committee and is an ASA board member. And this podcast is sponsored by ASA's Public Policy Committee. Joining us today are three members of the ASA Board of Directors. Michael Adams is board chair of ASA. ASA and the CEO of SAGE, Advocacy and Services for LGBT Elders. Rebecca C. Morgan is the Boston Asset Management Chair in Elder Law at Stenson College of Law. Joyce L. Walker is Vice President of Community Development for PK Management, LLC. We're going to be focusing on two topics today, the COVID-19 vaccination program as it relates to older adults and ageism in the political world. And our first topic will be moderated by Amy. Thanks, Paul. Um, We're really excited to be here today. Um, First, we're going to talk about the vaccination program um, in older adults for COVID-19, as as Paul mentioned. Um, And just before we get started, everyone listening to this podcast knows that there's been an outsized impact of COVID on older adults. Um, especially older adults with, with medical conditions. We've been hit really hard by COVID-19. Older adults are dying at a greater rate than, um, than other populations and also have higher risk of hospitalization. And we know that it's even worse among communities of color and, and older adults in those communities. Um, But as far as the vaccination program goes, we also know there's a lot of reluctance around getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But there's some good news for older adults. Um, According to a recent Gallup poll, um, just over half of Americans would agree to be vaccinated, but about two thirds of older adults would agree to be vaccinated. So um, hopefully that will be um, something coming out in the next couple months. But I wanted to start with you, Michael. Um, Michael, what's the role of the aging network in messaging to older adults who might be skeptical of getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, um, thank you, Amy. And uh, that's a great question. And I I think that there's an extremely important role for the aging network here. And we're operating in an unfortunate context because unfortunately, older Americans and Americans in general have been subjected since last March to really relentless um, stream of disinformation 
um, and misguiding information um, about the pandemic, about the threats, about the risks, and more recently about the vaccine. And so unfortunately, um, a lot of folks, including a lot of older Americans are operating um, without complete information or with information that's incorrect. And, and we see that reflected, even though it's heartening to see that more older Americans um, than, than the population in general are, are ready to be vaccinated. Really, the, the numbers aren't where we want them to be. So I think the aging network has a very important role to play in, in kind of correcting that and, and really trying to mitigate for that disinformation and lack of information because we're trusted messengers, um, because we are organizations who are known to older constituents as being reliable and 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 trusted communicators of trusted information. Um, so we we have a we, we need to leverage that um, that respect and that trust that we have earned in this context in order to ensure that older Americans are um, are given the information they need to make the 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 best choices for themselves. And I think among the assets that we bring to the table as organizations in the aging network is that we have experience effectively reaching and communicating with older people. We have experience with developing messaging campaigns. We have experiencing, we have experience with, with putting information together in a way that is accessible and effective, effective for older folks. And so um, that needs to be brought to bear in stepping up to the plate in this responsibility. And I would also, one more thing I would say is that I think within the aging network, we have we have entities that are particularly um, well connected to um, communities that are in, that have a special need for this kind of communication and education. So for example, um, you know, thinking on behalf of SAGE and, and our focus on LGBT older adults, we know that historically LGBT people have had a distrust of medical providers for a variety of historical reasons. That's something that my organization is very familiar with and historically has put together um, communication strategies to deal with that. And that's going to be very important now as we talk about um, the vaccine among the older population that SAGE focuses on. So in sum, I think there's a very important role that we have to play and it's essential that we play it. Well said, Michael. Thank you so much. And actually, it's a perfect segue to my next question um, about reaching individuals, people of color, because I know there's also a, a, a historical distrust of the medical system among some of those communities. And so I wanted to ask you, Joyce, how, do, how does the aging network reach individuals in diverse communities? Thanks, Amy. You know, um, I work in the housing industry with aging. And today, what we're doing is, especially in urban communities, we're reaching out to those local governments and local health departments to help with uh, disseminating COVID testing. Now, when it comes to vaccines, I can tell you that in most of the diverse communities, especially with African-Americans, they're gonna be very fearful, very fearful. And I'm saying that because of things that happened back in the 1950s with the syphilis study in Tuskegee and how those individuals were treated. People haven't forgotten about that, especially those who are aging today. They haven't forgotten about that because they were those people back in the 50s and the early 60s. So, you know, right now, I just read somewhere the other day where 
or actually saw on CNN where they're saying that nearly a third of, of people of color are going to be possibly um, looking at taking the vaccine, but the remainder of those folks are very hesitant and they're going to wait to see what the results are gonna be for everyone else before they actually take that vaccine. As far as, so I think reaching those folks to in those communities is going to have to be with education or through education. And the more we educate them about this vaccine and the more information they have, then I think they will, they might consider it. Otherwise, I don't think they're going to. Thank you. We have, we have our work cut out for us in the Aging Network. Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to turn to you, Rebecca. Um, we know that one of the first groups that's going to be able to access the COVID-19 vaccine are people that live in nursing homes. And so what can you tell us about the considerations for vaccinating those populations, including getting consent from them? Amy, thanks very much. Um, I was pleased to see that the folks in the long-term care facilities were begin being given a priority because we, as you said earlier, they were so hard hit. But we have yeah. to remember that individuals who live in nursing homes, they're, they're residents and they have the right to consent or the right to refuse. And so we have to think about the issues that are gonna come up for those individuals who don't have the ability to consent? Is there a healthcare agent in place for them to make that decision for them, or even a, a guardian? And for those who refuse to take the vaccine, what's the nursing home going to do as far as those individuals who may stay in the nursing home but not be protected against the virus? When, when the virus first hit, there was a lot of conversation about the, the model that we use for long-term care and in particular for the nursing homes. And I'm hoping that we, we don't lose sight of that conversation because there are, there are bigger issues once we get past this particular crisis that I think would be useful for us to have a conversation with to see if we can't improve upon the way we provide long-term care in this country. That's great, thank you, Rebecca. I know that we're optimistic that this um, global pandemic will be an opportunity for the nation to come out of it stronger and, and rethink some of the way we're providing care to older adults. So thank you so much. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Paul. All right, thanks, thanks Amy. Um, there's been much discussion in the media about the ages of both our current president and the president-elect, both of whom are well into their 70s. Uh, many pundits have suggested that both are too old to do the job. Um, we've heard people say that uh, Biden has, quote, lost a step uh, and things like that. Uh, furthermore, the, the president-elect has taken criticism in some quarters for cabinet nominees and other senior staff who are older and bring years of government experience to the job. The counter argument is that he should consider appointing fresh faces with new ideas. So with the president saying he's appointing people with that extensive experience who can hit the ground running on, on January 20th, Joyce, is, is there any legitimacy to his argument or is it ages towards younger potential nominees? You know, Paul, I, I I agree with what he's doing. I'm gonna tell you why. Because I feel that experience will outweigh in this case, especially in light 
of where we're coming from. I feel like we need the experience. We need those folks in this case who, from looking at his cabinet, who are older and have a lot of experience, a lot of government experience, especially in the areas that he's appointing them in. Who's to say that he's not appointing younger folks under them to work with them to learn and then they can move forward? That's that's how I feel about uh, what he's doing. I mean, even in my daily practices of hiring staff, that's what I do. I want to hire people who are older with experience, but I also want that 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 millennial person who can bring some fresh ideas to the table, but work with that experienced person and then put those ideas together. And to me, that forms a better pack. Great. Oh, uh, Rebe- Rebecca, Michael, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to jump in. I, said, I, I completely agree with Joyce. And I, I feel like some of the dynamics that we're seeing in, in the response both to, to President-elect Biden and mm-hmm. to some of his appointees really reflects a, an, an ageist tendency to, to devalue um, some of the tremendous assets that come with age and come with experience. And, um, right. you know, we, we see this, uh, I, I, I felt this over and over again in this and these repeated references to, you know, as you were saying, Paul, you know, Biden supposedly, you know, missing a step. But but where is the focus on the tremendous experience and, and wisdom that he's bringing to the table from his decades of experience in government and how critically important and valuable that is in this uniquely challenging time for the country. The fact right. that, that that focus isn't there and instead people choose to talk about a slip of a word here or there, things that are largely irrelevant, to me reflects a you know a deep ageist tendency in our country and in our culture. Is it, uh, Rebecca, any thoughts? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Paul. I have some <laughs> thoughts. I mean, you can look back in history and see um, with any any of our leaders over the years, and including the Supreme Court justices, you know, the, the idea of whether these people are too old, if you will. And I think that that begs the question, we're, we need to be looking at their abilities and their experiences. And, and these are not normal times. I think all of us can agree that these are not normal times. And the challenges that face our country are just staggering. And we don't we need right. to get up to speed and we need to go as quickly as we can with the most experienced people to try to solve some of these problems that, that are facing us. But we also do need to pay attention to the fact that that ageism is real and we as members of ASA are particularly attuned to be aware of it and to speak out when we see it happen. Well, speaking of that, I mean, recently, California Senator Dianne Feinstein has received some criticism and has even been mocked on social media for perceived lapses in her mental acuity. Uh, In fact, there have been reports that said that she's pressured to step down as the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee for her performance in the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Uh, Michael, is criticism of her mental acuity fair? Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, that's an important question, and it's a. It's a complicated one, and um, to me, it, it it needs to be considered in the context of 
of what does healthy aging mean and what does successful aging mean? And, and, and it, it, it's about um, as a society and as a culture and as each of us individually, as we age, recognizing our, our assets and how to adapt, how to adapt to change, right? And, and, and in a sense, I think it's the flip side of the conversation we were just having about Joe Biden. One of the things that's been refreshing to see as an older American in Joe Biden is I think his own embracing um, of, of the strengths that come with aging. And I think probably some sense of his limitations as well. Um, you know, what's troubled me about the uh, about the conversations about Senator Feinstein is here again, I think, um, an exclusive focus on, on deficits, on the deficits of aging, as opposed to a valuing of the experience that comes with it. And at the same time, though, certainly, um, you know, given some of the information that has um, come public with regard to, um, you know, Senator Feinstein, it, it does seem like it's probably a time for the senator to be thinking about uh, herself, you know, like what, what are the assets that she brings forward at this point mm-hmm. um, in her life as part of her own healthy aging process and successful aging process. But I think that's where the focus should be. The focus should be on, on helping and supporting each individual to make that successful assessment themselves and adaptation, as opposed to, you know, demanding that people step aside or, 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 or step out of the way, so to speak, for younger people. Mm-hmm. Joyce, do you want to jump in? Um, I I um, I kind of read through the article about Senator Feinstein, and um, I agree with Michael that you know as we age, we should take a look at ourselves and see where we are and and how we can move forward and what we have um, to offer the organization at that point in our life or moving forward. And not to say that we have to step down, like in her case, not to say, I'll use myself as an example, not to say that I would step down as vice president because I feel like I'm getting older, but because I need to look at what uh, assets I have to bring to the table. And if I still have certain assets to bring to the table, but I can have another person who's younger than myself on my team to bring them up and have them take over certain responsibilities that I know that, you know, it's, it might take me um, not necessarily longer to do, but I may look at it at a view that isn't necessarily where we are today, but that person could. I, I feel that's, that's what we should do, but I agree with you, Michael. So I guess related to that, I guess maybe Rebecca, I mean, it, we, we talk about assets, which I think makes makes great sense and sort of evaluating, looking at the longer term evaluation. But we're in this sort of hypercritical mode with media and, and whatnot. Um, how do we how do we educate or deal with, you know, with the media who immediate, you know, in social media who. You know, I, I think there were a couple of lapses that, that Senator Feinstein had that, you know, within minutes were, you know, trending on social media and people mocking her. Um, how do we how do we address that type of thing? Well, I, I think that dealing with the media and now with social media, it's not necessarily professional reporters that we're that we're dealing with. Um, it's. It's always been a matter of education and helping them understand the changes that may occur when 
people age and what truly is just a slip of the tongue versus something that is a cognitive decline. And the media, um, they have a 24-7 platform. And so I think one thing that ASA in particular can do is to try to be educating about the fact that you know people can um, make mistakes, but that doesn't mean that they're not an asset, that they can still accomplish many things, and that we shouldn't just look at a word in isolation. We have to look beyond that. So sort of pivoting off of that, um, we're obviously living in a very divisive time. I mean, polls show alarming number of Americans who question the validity of the election, uh, despite that it is definitely done and over with and the president-elect will be sworn in on January 20th. We're reminded daily about the needs for racial justice reform and a whole host of other issues. Rebecca, I mean, is there a specific role that older adults can play in lowering the temperature in this country and maybe bringing civility into our public discourse and actions? Oh, Paul, I think that's a really good point. And I think absolutely so. I think older folks have the advantage of seeing history. Over time, we have seen partisanship and we have seen the way to come together um, and work across the aisles, if you will. And I think that those on the on the edges are going to still be on the edges and, and are not going to be looking for working together, but those who can see the value of collaboration could come forward and speak out. It's, it's easy just to be quiet and shake your head, but if more of us would be leaders in this particular issue and calming down the temperature and having rational conversations, fact-based conversations, noting the advantages of working together, I think that could go a long way into lowering the temperature. So, Michael, would that you agree with that? I do, I do, and I think that you know we live in this time when it's like a, a time of high drama, right? Where where there you know passions and 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 you know are are at an all time high, and it seems like every moment is being treated as like the make or break moment. And and one of the beauties I think of getting older, one of the beauties of well, older folks is people who've lived through a lifetime, who've seen like decades of experience, have seen the long haul, right? I mean, that they, that they, you know, that there's more perspective there. And I think we desperately need that perspective right now. You know, we desperately need that, that perspective. I, I, I recall recently, uh, about a year ago, I saw Angela Davis um, speak and, um, and, you know, she was, uh, asked whether she was an optimist in the face of all the challenges we're facing and, and challenges around racism in this country. And I was really struck by what she said. And she said that, you know, she was, and uh, what I recall her saying is that she was an optimist, not because of anything in this particular moment, but because of looking at the trajectory of history and recognizing that it's a responsibility of each of us to do what we can um, and that ultimately that will contribute to, you know, to progress over time. And that's a long haul perspective, right? And that's a perspective I think, that comes from age and comes from elder, elder wisdom that is desperately needed in this time of, of constant drama. And then Joyce, some thoughts? You know, I, I like to see older adults 
working in their communities, meaning on a volunteerism basis where they're working with their their local um, city government, such as their um, their aldermans and and those type of folks and and really getting out getting the word out on what's really happening in the communities and being an activist in that sense because a lot of people are going to listen to that older adult because they have been around especially when they get out there and they really work their community they do get that respect we um have had a woman in Cleveland and uh, she was in the city of Cleveland, but I had an opportunity many times to meet her and to um, sit on panels with her. And this woman was so amazing. And she was working, doing those type of community activists, um, sharing of information and talking to people about the importance of voting and speaking to people about the importance of picking the right candidate based on the needs of those communities. And she was doing that up until she died and she was in her nineties when she passed. And I mean, up until she died. So, you know, I think that's very important because people do listen to that and they, and they respect that individual. If you're in that community and you're working in that community and you're out there every day or every week and you're involved, I mean, you would think that this lady had been the governor of the state of Ohio, the way people treated her and looked up to her. She was she was just amazing. So I think that getting, you know, or encouraging older adults to really get involved in their their local communities is is really a big deal. And I think a lot of them feel like it's not anymore, but we have to encourage that. And I think with ASA, we do that. We encourage people and older adults and let them know how important they are. And especially, you know, when some of them can go to our website, see our resources and everything that we have available to them, you know, it really makes a difference for them. This has all been a, a terrific advice. I would ask all of our listeners to take it to heart and, and see what you can do in your own communities, because I think we'd all benefit by by bringing some civility and and being able to have thoughtful discussion and and take advantage, as Joyce was saying, you know, listening to some of the wisdom of of our elders who've who've been around and maybe have a few scars to, to show for it, but can provide some good good advice right. for us all. So with that, I'm going to toss it back to Amy. Great, thank you, Paul, and thank you especially to all of our speakers, Michael, Rebecca, and Joyce. We really appreciate it, and thank you to my co-host, Paul. Um, we're really excited about the upcoming um, policy window that's opening in the first 100 days of the new Biden administration and the new Congress. And um, as we discussed today, we are really looking to think about ways that the ASA can provide support for the COVID. 19 vaccine administration and look at ways to rethink the way we provide care and services for older adults in this country. Um, and then as a society, we'll continue to expose and fight ageism when we see it. So hopefully you can continue to join with us and engage with us at ASA in 2021 and happy new year.